right, good morning, everybody. Uh, Miss Monica Kinney is going to come and read for us. So hopefully by now you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Um, if not, the verses will be on the screen, uh, but she's going to read uh, the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 2. So if you'll stand uh, for the reading of God's word, uh, Monica is going to read it for us. So whenever you're ready. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Amen. Thank you. Let's give her a hand. Thank you, Monica, for reading that. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word. And uh, God, we just invite you to speak. Um, God, I pray that um, your name and your renown would be the desire of our souls. God, not to us, not to Mission Church, not to my name. Uh, but to your name alone be the glory. And God, I pray that you would be magnified, um, that you would glorify yourself over these next few minutes. And uh, God, that you would edify your church, um, that you would draw those that don't even know um, that they're going to be a part of your church, that you would draw them to yourself um, today. God, I pray that salvation would be found in this place through your spirit's work. Um, and God, ultimately, that you would make us more like your son. Um, God, we need wisdom. Um, God, our hearts are prone to wander. Um, so as, as the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. God, would you do your sealing work by your spirit once again, um, God, to give us wisdom and keep us from our wandering uh, to lesser things. Um, so God, be with us as we talk about uh, this passage. God, give me grace and conviction, um, but also care as we talk about some weighty things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, when I was a senior in high school, um, a buddy of mine uh, was having his 16th birthday, a good friend of mine, many of you probably know him, is Eli Willard, uh, many of you know Eli and Scott and Carla and their family, um, he was having his 16th birthday, and for his birthday, he wanted to go camping at Bay Springs, I don't know if any of y'all have been to Bay Springs, if you're lake people, if you've been down to Mississippi and uh, been to that section of the Tennessee River, 
But uh, he wanted to go, and his family has a camper, and that was kind of their place that they always went. They went to the campground over there at Bay Springs. And so he asked me if I could bring our family's boat um, down there. And uh, that's a whole other story for another day. But my family owned a boat with another family. Uh, It's the only way we could afford it, but it was a blast, and we had a great time. So I'm a senior in high school, and Dad's like, here's the truck, go get the boat. We had to go get the boat at Pickwick and then drive it down to Bay Springs. And uh, I had never been to Bay Springs before, so Siri, you know, was navigating for me. And uh, I remember as we're about 15, 20 minutes out, you know, Siri says, take a right here. So I kind of veer off into this road, and it very quickly becomes just woods, you know, just your typical country road, uh, dirt, gravel, trees on both sides, you know, very woodsy. And about five minutes down this road, and of course we turn on the road and Eli's like, yeah, this road doesn't look very familiar to me. And I'm like, great, you know, this will be fine. We'll figure it out. Siri never fails. And then I see this, you know, the most frustrating thing, if you've ever been driving and Siri's been navigating, where the blue dot just kind of teleports and moves through trees and land and sea to like where you're supposed to be. Like after you turn on the street, it told you to turn. Then it just assumes you're able to teleport with it and it moves back onto the highway. And we're on this road and there's literally barely enough space for one car to go one way. And there's no way somebody was gonna pass us. So we're just driving down this road and about you know a mile in, it just stops. You know, there's just, there's just woods in front of us. Like the road just kind of quit and just said, I'm done. And so were we. So we just quickly realized, hey, this is a dead end street. And then for the rest of the afternoon, uh, you got to remember, I have a truck and a boat and a trailer behind me. And you can't just turn that baby around with trees all around you. So I have to back up the entire mile and dodge the trees. And of course, my buddies are out, you know, sitting on the boat and all the windows are down and they're yelling at me like, go this way and go this way. But they're not giving directions. They're just pointing, thinking that I can see their fingers, you know, that way. And I'm like, I'm looking forward. Which way is that way? Like, I need a left or a right. But then they're facing behind me. So their left was my right. And you just see how quickly this turned into, you know, quite the fiasco. But we finally made it to Bay Springs. We had a great time. He had a great birthday. Uh, very memorable one. But I tell you all that to say, you know, why in the world did I tell you that story? Because I wish somebody would have been there. I wish Siri or somebody would have told me, hey, this is a dead end street. That if you go down this street, there's nothing for you there and it's gonna cost you a lot to get out of that situation. And if you wanna know what Solomon's doing in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's essentially doing that with everything that we could ever pursue in this life. He's raising the flag. Hey, this is a dead end street. Hey, if you're going after earthly wisdom just for earthly wisdom's sake, it's a dead-end street. Don't go down there. You're going to get stuck. You're going to get lost. You're not going to be able to turn around, and it's going to cause a lot of damage trying to get out. Hey, if you're just in it for your own name and to be remembered, it's a dead-end street. You know, do all that you want. Try all that you want, but somebody someday is going to show up, and they're going to forget you, and they're going to move on from you, and despite whatever records you have or accolades you have, they're going to get replaced by somebody else, and the park's going to get renamed, and the statue's going to get renamed, and all of those kind of things. It's a dead-end street. Don't do it. And Solomon is just picking the different things that our hearts are drawn to and saying, hey, don't go down that road because it's not going to give you the thing that you're looking for. And I wish somebody would have told me that on the highway as a senior in high school. And I'm grateful, though, that more importantly than that, that Solomon is giving us the, hey, don't go down that road over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's going to do that here again today. 
And he's going to talk about pleasure in general. If you're just in it for human pleasure, for pleasure's sake, it's a dead-end street. But he's also going to give us a lot of specifics. So we're going to talk about each of those. Um, But to, to give you a quick review, Solomon opened this book by telling us that everything under the sun is meaningless. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, in chapter one, verse two. And then the the question of the book is, what do you gain from all the toil under the sun? What does man gain from all of the work, all of the striving, all of the Monday mornings at the office, all of the accolades that you're trying to get, all of the bills you're trying to pay, all of the things you're trying to do in this life, all of the the good efforts, the philanthropies, all the, the desire to be remembered? What do you gain from all of your toiling and your striving under the sun? And he's arguing that this, this phrase under the sun essentially means apart from the Lord, that just life down here, not focusing on God and what he's doing in your life or what he's doing in the world, but just in and of itself, what does this world have to offer? And he says nothing. It's meaningless. It's vanity. That word um, in its simplest form just means vapor or wind. It means you know something that looks alluring, something that looks like you're going to grab it and you get there and there's no, there's no substance. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. It's fleeting. It shows up and then it's gone and we can't really get our hands around it. And then we looked at last week that he said, ultimately, what's what's crooked cannot be made straight. That Solomon assesses the world and he says, whoa, 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 there's some deep brokenness in here. And there's no amount of wisdom, there's no amount of intelligence that you can get, there's no amount of you know, efficiency with your schedule and your day and your work and your diet and your fitness, there's no amount of you know, human efficiency and wisdom that you can gain that can ever fix what's broken inside of you. You just can't. You can be the, the smartest, most productive, most established, you know, most um, esteemed person in our community. And everyone looks at you and go, man, they seem to really have it all together. And you cannot fix what's broken inside of you. That we have a brokenness that cuts deep. And it's the effects of our sin. It's this nature now that we have because of our sin, because of the fall in Genesis 3. And and Solomon says, what's broken, what's crooked cannot be made straight. And he says, for in much wisdom, the more you learn about, you know, the more progress you get, the more you learn about this world, the more anxious you get and the more sorrow you get because you realize that, hey, it doesn't matter what I do, I can't fix this. I can't fix the broken relationships in my life. Man, I wish I could. I can't fix my broken body when that diagnosis comes. Man, I wish I could. And in God's grace, he allows us, you know, forgiveness in our relationships, he allows medicine to work, but in and of itself, without the kindness of God, I can't fix what's broken in me. I can't fix what's broken in our society. I can't fix what's broken in the world. So Solomon says that the more you learn about the world and the more you learn about wisdom, the more you realize that our problem is so much greater than we ever thought. And our problem's not just out there. And I mean, watch the news. We can all see that, hey, we have a lot of problems out there. But Solomon says our deepest problem is in here. That we have a heart problem more than we have a circumstance problem. And we're gonna see today, it doesn't matter how pretty your circumstances get, we still have a problem in here that no amount of perfect circumstances will ever fix. Does that make sense? So this is what he's been talking about. And let's look at um, chapter two, verse one. He says this, and he's used this phrase a couple times. You'll notice that Solomon repeats a lot of his phrases. He even repeats a lot of the things that he's running after because the point of this book, he even wrote it in a way that's supposed to make you tired. So here we go again, talking about wisdom again. I thought we talked about that two weeks ago. And we probably, in God's providence, need another good dose of, hey, human wisdom's not gonna do it for you. 
But Solomon is writing this in a cyclical way because it's supposed to make us tired. It's supposed to wear us out. It's supposed to to show us all of the, the vanity of our toil. But he says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. So Solomon announces, which for the reader, it's very helpful, the next thing that he's gonna run after. And that next thing is pleasure. I'm going to test myself with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And before he does that, he already gives us his conclusion. Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay it out for you, but before you even get lost in the details, let me just tell you where this road goes. It's a dead-end street. It's not gonna do it for you. No amount of pleasure that you could ever experience under the sun is going to fix what's broken in us and is going to give us lasting fulfillment and joy to where we'll never need anything else again. And we'll talk about some examples of that. But what does he say? I'm gonna test myself with pleasure, but he says, but behold, here's the conclusion. This was also vanity. But listen to that phrase. Come now, test yourself with pleasure, find your fulfillment in pleasure, enjoy yourself, right? This was Solomon's agenda for a period of his life, is just do whatever I can to enjoy myself. And isn't that the message of our world today, right? Do whatever makes you feel good. Do whatever you feel like doing in the moment. Do whatever makes you happy. Come and do whatever you feel like. Come and follow your heart. Do whatever you feel like your heart is telling you to do in the moment. And here's the deal. This is highly problematic. That advice, follow your heart, is very problematic because there is great sin in my heart. Reason number one. But we all know this, that if we just lived our lives and all we did was what we felt like doing in the moment, none of us in here would be married, right? That would have ended months ago. None of us in here would have our jobs. None of us in here would be able to pay our bills to to function as human beings in society, right? Because we all know that if we just did whatever we feel like in the moment, there's a lot of things that I feel like doing that aren't good for me. Children, you know this to be true. Imagine if your parents let you eat whatever you felt like eating for dinner every night. Ice cream for dinner every night is not good for you. Sour Patch Kids for lunch is not a good meal. There are things, some of you are shaking your heads like, yeah, it is. Um, Sorry, I'm just speaking the truth. There are things that are not good for us, but man, do we feel like we want them in the moment. And if we just live our lives doing whatever we feel like doing, it's not going to end well for us in our, in our health, in our relationships, in our job, in our you know, intimacy with the Lord, you name it. And then there's also things that we don't feel like doing that we know are really good for us, aren't they? Like discipline and physical fitness and running and eating right and eating your vegetables and going to bed on time. We don't always feel like doing those things in the moment, but they're good for us, aren't they? Running, the verdict is still out. I don't know if that's good for you. You know, Proverbs says the wicked run when no one is chasing them. So I don't get why everyone goes out and runs in the morning. I'm not a runner just yet. But you see the point. And the, the, the biblical evidence for this is the scriptures say that our heart is deceitful. As I said a minute ago, there's sin in our hearts. So for me to follow my heart and go after whatever my heart wants in the moment is not a good thing. 
Jeremiah says, in Jeremiah 17, he says, the heart is deceitful. He says, um, above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? So, so the biblical advice is don't follow your heart. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, he put this quote um, out recently, and um, I want to read it to you. It won't be on the screen, but this is what he says. He's talking about you know, following your heart and doing whatever feels right. He says this, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and response to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. But my feelings are not God. And if I'm gonna follow my heart and I'm gonna just go and do whatever I think will bring some enjoyment to myself like Solomon did, just enjoy yourself. Go search anything that can bring you pleasure. It will not end well. And Solomon ran after what he felt like would make him happy in the moment. And we get the benefit of learning from that dead-end street. And he's already told us it's vanity, it's meaningless. But then he says this, he gives some specifics. He says this in verse two, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now, when he, when he says laughter there, what he means is this kind of superficial pleasure, right? He's gonna pursue some kind of deeper, more weighty pleasures, but he said, I'm just gonna start with laughter. I'm just gonna have a good time in this life. I'm just gonna pursue that. I'm just gonna run after this kind of superficial, enjoy everything, enjoy life, laughter. And, but notice his response. He says, it is mad. What does he mean by that? I pursued laughter. I said of laughter, it is mad. What he means is that if you approach the world with just this trivial kind of enjoyment, this trivial kind of laughter, sarcasm, you name it, whatever it is, and make jokes about everything and just try to enjoy everything, you'll go mad. Why? Because there's some deep, weighty problems in this world that you can't just laugh off. And if you have deep tension in your marriage or deep tension in your relationships or you see some deep-seated evil problems out in the world and we try to just kind of joke about it like it's gonna get all better, he says it will drive you mad if you just try to approach the deep-seated, wicked, crooked, bent-out-of-shape things to pull some language from chapter one. If you try to approach some of these deeply crooked, broken things with just trivial laughter, he says it'll drive you mad because there's just some weighty things that, that laughter is never gonna fix. There's no amount of jokes, no amount of sarcasm, no amount of trivial humor that will make the brokenness go away. And in fact, Proverbs 14 says, even in laughter, the heart may ache, and, at the, er, and the end of joy may be grief. And what he's saying there is even when someone's laughing on the inside, there's a good chance that there's some brokenness, that we often always try to use laughter to try to deflect and defend from us actually dealing with the hard, sad, broken truth of this world or of our relationships. Many of you, I often fall into this camp where laughter is kind of a defense mechanism, where I'll just kind of laugh off the situation instead of dealing with the hard truth of what's going on. But he says, even in the midst of laughter, there's a heart that aches. And at the end of joy, there may be grief. Um, the Proverbs also depict, though, laughter as being foolish. It says this in Proverbs 10. It says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. 
but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. So he says that, hey, the fool laughs as they do wrong, right? That they laughed at the wisdom of God. We think it's a joke, right? Why would I do that? Why would I be disciplined? Why would I have integrity when I can just lie to get ahead in my business? Well, you're not gonna cheat on that test at school? That's so silly. Everyone does it. Why would you not, right? We, we laugh at doing the right thing. We laugh as we do the wrong thing. And then it says this in Proverbs 26, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. And so many times we try to mask our sin, mask our arrogance, mask our rudeness towards one another, mask our mean comments towards one another with, ah, I'm just kidding. Have any of you ever been on the wrong side of one of those, right? Where we know there's a little bit of truth in the joke, but we just kind of try to, you know, justify it with, ah, I was just joking, right? It's just a joke, man. I just made fun of you and who you are and your insecurities, but I was just joking, right? But man, do we do this. Now, I want to be clear. Is Solomon saying that every time you laugh, you're hiding some pain? No. Is he saying that every time you laugh, you're living in sin? No. That's not what he's saying, okay? It's totally appropriate to laugh, right? In, in so many places in scripture, it actually encourages us to laugh. In the next chapter, in the, the, the chapter of Ecclesiastes that everyone knows, where he says, under heaven there's a time, and under heaven there's a season, he says in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. He says there is a time to laugh. Um, in the book of Genesis, when Isaac was born and God created life in um, Sarah's barren womb, she responds with, the Lord has restored laughter to me. Like he's given me my laughter back. And now from, from now on, when everyone hears this story, they're gonna laugh at the goodness of God in a good way, like a good laughter. But over and over again, it is okay to laugh. Um, Proverbs 31 is another example where it says that the, the Proverbs 31 woman, she's clothed with strength and dignity and she laughs at the things to come in a good way, that she's so confident in the Lord and who he is and what he's done that she can look at the future and all of the potential problems and just laugh. That, hey, I'm okay. That there is a time to laugh. But Solomon says, if you're just going to approach the brokenness of this world with some trivial laughter, he says, it will drive you mad. And then he says of this, and of pleasure, what use is it? And he's gonna give some examples of, of what's the gain from pleasure. When you run after all of these things to find pleasure, what do you gain? So he says this in verse three, I search with my heart. Here he's again. He's not just glancing. He's not just doing a quick Google search. He's not just phoning a friend. He's applying his heart. He's searching with his heart. He is truly investigating. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And he starts with alcohol right? Where many of us started to try to find pleasure in this life. He joined a fraternity, right? This is what he did. He said, I'm going to try to find some fulfillment, some purpose, some joy in this pleasure. And Solomon's first goal, he's searching with his heart. This isn't just him willy-nilly. I want to cheer my body. I want to find some joy, some lasting satisfaction, some fulfillment with wine, He's looking for pleasure and he's trying to find it in the bottom of a bottle. Now, I wanna let you in on just a debate about this verse 
Because some people are arguing, okay, is he talking about like the, the fine wine, you know, and like he's a wine connoisseur because he was a king. And it says here, this phrase is what's um, causing all of the debate. He says, I search with my heart to cheer my body with wine. And he says this, this kind of, you know, segment inside the verse, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So theologians go back and forth on, is he saying, hey, I wasn't over-consuming, right? I was just trying to find the best of wines. I was trying to find the nicest of wines. Or was he over-consuming with the best of wines? Who knows? I think that we can land right in the middle of both because he also says, and how to lay hold on folly, right? So his heart is still guiding him with wisdom. He's still doing this to try to search out, is there fulfillment in this pleasure? But he also says that he laid hold and participated in folly. Does that make sense? So I think Solomon is kind of painting this picture of being right in the middle. Yes, he tried the best of wines, but he also had a couple moments where he said, you know, hold my wine and watch this, right? Where he's participating in some things that were foolish. He is trying everything. He's trying everything. His heart still guiding him was with him with wisdom, but he's trying folly. And he's trying to find joy, lasting joy in alcohol, in wine. And hear the words of Solomon. It is a dead end road. Wine and any other beverage that produces a similar effect. They're not evil in and of themselves. They're not from the devil. But he says, if you are looking for lasting joy in this substance, you are never going to find it. And church, we need to hear this. If there is a dependence where I, I need that daily or regularly to add some joy or some escape or some rest or some peace to my day, to, to take the edge off the stress of my day, church, turn to Christ, not to the bottle, because the bottle's gonna keep beckoning you back and it's never going to satisfy and it's gonna take more and more of your money, more and more of your life, more and more of your self-control. And we all know stories of someone who lost everything they ever loved because of five minutes without self-control in a bottle. And he says, if you're looking to find lasting purpose and peace and joy and fulfillment in this substance, he says it's time to see that it's a dead-end street. And I would implore you, turn to Christ he has lasting joy. He has the rest that can take the, the, the stress and the burden off of your week. He has the peace in his presence. Psalm 60, in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That he has what you're looking for in that bottle that the bottle will never give you. And Solomon says, hey, that is a dead end street. And notice what he says um, in this sentence too. There's a lot in this one verse, but he says this. I tried with wine, my heart so guided me with wisdom, laid hold of folly. He says this, till I might see what was good for the children, right? I just wanna see what all the kids are, are trying to find in this substance. But then he says this, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. We're four sermons into this book and Solomon is four for four on reminding us that our lives are incredibly short. Over and over and over again. We cannot skip by that phrase that our time on this earth is very, very short. How foolish would it be of us to try to find lasting joy in something under the sun? 
especially pleasure or a bottle or accolades or you name it. He says, your days are few. James says it's like a mist here one minute and gone the next. Psalm says it's like a handbreadth. It's literally just the width of your hand and the span of eternity. Also in Psalms, it says that, that man lives 70 years, 80 in strength, right? This is about all we have. And we mentioned this last week, that at 27, your body starts to, to lose more cells than it produces. 27 and on, it's kind of the beginning of the end for all of us, right? This life is so short. Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says that the grass, that all flesh is like grass and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The flesh is like grass and the glory of our flesh is like the flowers and the grass withers and the flowers are gonna fall. The only thing that's going to last is not us in this life under the sun, not our human bodies. Our souls will live eternally because we're created by God and he stamped his image on us. Everyone's gonna spend forever somewhere. But this life here under the sun is so fleeting and is so short and four out of four sermons already, he's reminded us that our lives are short. And then he says this. Notice a trend in the next few verses when we talk about pleasure. I want you to see all of the, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, the first person pronouns. Everybody remember English class or the sermon a week ago? First person, what is first person? It's I, me, we. It's, it's all of these pronouns talking about self. Second person is you, you all. Third person is he, she, it, they, them, those kind of things. But notice the trend in the next couple verses. Here's what he says. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. You see the trend there? You see the turn in the text? I went after everything that I could get my hands on. And Solomon was the king of Israel. And, and Israel was at its prime. Israel was on top of the world. Yahweh had established himself as the one God over all the other pagan gods. He had shown himself as the one true God. And now Solomon is leading his people. He has all of the wisdom, all of the money, all of the status, all of the pleasure that you could ever get your hands on. Hear it from Solomon, not from me. Because if you would look at me, you just don't have enough. You just haven't attained enough. You just haven't done enough. You just haven't achieved enough. You just haven't learned enough. You're right, I haven't. Solomon had. And he says it's a dead-end street. But we need to acknowledge something because it's, it's clear in the text, it's upfront in the text, and it probably made you uncomfortable in the text. So before we walk through these verses, let's address the slavery piece real fast. Does that make sense? Because I wanna make sure we're clear on that. Students, you need to know this. Children, you need to know this. Because there are people that will use this to try to flip your worldview upside down. Because here we see, verse seven, I bought male slaves and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions and herds of flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So here's what I want you to see. When the Bible talks about slavery, 
And I want to say this with extreme care and concern. I don't say this flippantly or lightly. Um, the Bible is using a very different term for slavery or a very different definition for slavery than what we saw in the 1800s and the early 1900s. It is a very different definition of slavery, completely different than what we saw um, in our world today. In fact, the Bible explicitly forbids taking someone and kidnapping someone and selling someone. Explicitly. Exodus 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. I want you to see that loud and clear. That the Bible expressly forbids what we saw in our country through the African slave trade and it was based on race and it was evil and it was wrong and in nowhere is the Bible supporting what happened. In fact, the Bible calls it evil. Does that make sense? I want you to see that loud and clear. When the Bible uses the term slavery, there's, there's two different kinds. In um, the, the early, you know, pre-Jesus world, um, essentially what would happen is if you were the world power of the day, you would just invade other nations and other peoples and you would take them for yourself. It wasn't based on race, it was just warfare. It was just the Wild West. It's happened to Israel. When Israel was in need, Israel experienced a famine, they had need, what do they do? They go to Egypt and Egypt says, okay, you're becoming one of us. All throughout the Old Testament, different people would conquer other peoples and they would just take them. It happened to Israel multiple times. In fact, Israel was never on the receiving end of people. They were always on the end that was getting taken. Assyria comes in and wipes out the nation of Israel and takes many of their people. The Bible calls it evil. Babylon comes in, wipes out Israel and takes some of their people, splits them from their families, brings them back to Babylon. That's the first kind. The other kind is in the Greco-Roman world and it was all about paying off debts. It was all about economics. It wasn't based on race. It wasn't stealing people from their families. It was the way that you paid off a debt in the first century. So if I incurred a debt and I had to, to pay off my debt, what someone could come and do is they could pay my debt for me, and now instead of owing this business, I owed the person that paid my debt. And I would go and work for them until my debt was paid off. Does that make sense? So the Bible gives lots of um, instruction. Um, Colossians chapter three, Ephesians chapter four, um, 1 Peter chapter three, about how masters are supposed to treat those people that they're often called bond servants who someone came and paid my debt and now I'm going to come and work off this debt. And in fact, many people who were slaves, after they paid off their debt, they were essentially welcomed into the family and they would wanna stay. Uh, we have a letter in the New Testament written about a slave. It's the book of Philemon, it's one chapter. And what happens is um, this man named Onesimus runs from Philemon because he can't pay his debt and he knows he can't pay his debt, so he just bails. And on his running, he meets Paul. And Paul converts him to Christ. And Paul sends him back to Philemon with this letter. And Paul writes this letter to Philemon. He says, hey man, I know he owes you a debt, but now he met Jesus. So he's not your servant. He's now your brother in Christ. And you gotta forgive his debt. Why? Because you've been forgiven of a much greater debt to Jesus. And he says, so receive him as a brother, welcome him as a brother and forgive his debt. That's the book of Philemon. But I want you to see that this is very, very different than taking someone based on race and owning them and selling them and trading them. 
from the African slave trade. Does that make sense? The Bible calls that evil, and we do too, all right? Just wanted to make that clear. We didn't want to skip over that section. But here's what I want you to see in this text, what Solomon is talking about here. He says this in verse four. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, all kinds of fruit trees. So you see, I don't have to read it again. Solomon went after everything he could get his hands on. He said, I went after houses, vineyards, public monuments to myself, right? Like parks and all sorts of things, work, money, sex, singers, right? I had my own personal concerts. I went after it all. Solomon created his own version of paradise. And many theologians point out that he says that I planted gardens and I had all kinds of trees. And it's almost a callback to the Garden of Eden. Solomon said, as best as I could, I recreated the Garden of Eden. I had my own paradise. And what he's saying here is it doesn't matter how good your circumstances get. You still have the curse of the fall. You could go back to the garden, but you're still cursed and you're never gonna be satisfied. It doesn't matter how good your circumstances get and boy, do we think this though. Man, if I can just get these kids through college or if we can just get through, if I can just make it to retirement, if I could just get this promotion, if I could just make partner at the business, if I could just you know, become valedictorian at school, then I will be satisfied. If I can just get my circumstances in order, with my family, with my job, with my you know, emotional health, with my physical fitness. And the more you start rattling these off, the more you realize that's impossible. But man, do we believe the lie. If I can just get everything in order, then I will be at peace. Then I will have lasting joy. <coughs> Excuse me. And Solomon says, it won't do it. And we know this. Think about the last time you went to a concert. Many of you have tickets to Taylor Swift or you had tickets to Taylor Swift, right? Going to a concert can give you a lot of hope and can give you a lot of joy and a lot of excitement for a moment. And you know this. If you're about to head to Nashville to go see Taylor Swift, that you'll endure hard days at work, you'll endure you know, complicated circumstances, you'll put in a little extra time because you know Friday's coming, I'm headed to Nashville, I'm going to the stadium, and I'm gonna see Taylor Swift, right? And all it takes is for one thing to go wrong. And this thing that you thought, this is gonna be the, the mecca of my semester. This is gonna be it. It's, I'm gonna, joy overload, it's gonna be incredible. And then if you're like me, it never fails. Someone really tall sits right in front of you, right? Or you happen to get a cold on your way there. Or you have a headache while you're there. And one tiny little detail changes and there's no joy. Or guess what happens? The concert goes perfect and you get there on time. You've got your sparkly outfit. You're there. You've got your besties. You're singing to Taylor Swift and everything goes great. And then the concert ends and you go home back to your school and back to your homework and back to your life and back to your commitments and back to your brokenness. And you look in the mirror and you realize it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, right? You do. You say, hey, that that thing that promised me joy won't give it to me. Adults, you know this when you go on vacation. I got the date on the calendar, right? I'm just gonna grind hard at work. I can, I can endure a lot of tough stuff. I can put up with all the stuff at work. I'm just gonna grind it out. I'm gonna get there because Gulf of Mexico is coming in two weeks, right? Or you know, Jamaica or wherever you're going. Joy awaits. 
And then all it takes is one sickness while you're there, you know, one thing to not go your way. They ran out of umbrellas down at the beach, whatever it is. Parents, you know this of children, that vacation is just more work with a better view, right? You're a pack mule that just takes all the things down. You know that, and then you get home and you need a vacation from your vacation, regardless if it goes perfect or if it's just okay. It will never fully and finally satisfy you. It brings you some joy for the moment, but it will not satisfy. You can have paradise made over, but the curse remains. You can recreate the goodness of the garden as much as we could, and we know creation's broken, so you can't actually recreate the garden. But you could get all your circumstances in order and recreate paradise, and the curse of the fall remains. And none of those things will ever satisfy you. And here's the deal. I'd rather have a right relationship with the Lord and have nothing, have trouble, have sickness, have suffering, and have the Lord than to have a circumstantially perfect life and not have the Lord. It's the promised land. I would rather be in the wilderness with God than in the promised land without him. And Solomon says, hear and see that it is a dead-end street. Mark 8, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? Hear the words of Solomon. And those are just possessions. And if you think that's it, right? He says, I've got one better for you. I didn't just go after possessions. I went after accolades. I went after all these accomplishments, these accolades, more accumulation. And what does he say in verse nine? So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. All my wisdom remained with me. This is many of us. Right? If I can't get all the circumstances, I'm just going to do whatever I can to be great. I'm just going to do whatever I can to be noticed, to be recognized, to, to get all of the accolades, to get all of the recognition. I'm going to set out to start something great or to do something great or to be great, to make a great change. And Solomon achieved all of that. And we believe the lie. If I just can become validatorian, then I'll be fulfilled. If I can just become homecoming queen, then my joy will be complete. If I can just make manager, a regional manager, a partner, then I'll be filled with joy. If I can just get to retirement, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have lasting joy. And we grind and we work and we try. And Solomon says that all of it is like chasing after the wind. If I just get enough to purchase this house or the beach house, then my life will be awesome. And Solomon says it won't satisfy. But then he says this. Because this is the next, the second best that we go to. Hey, I know I can't get those things. I know I can't achieve those things. I'll just do better than the people around me. Notice what he says. I'm just gonna surpass all who were before me. And this is what we settle for. Hey, I know I can't circumstantially make paradise. I know I can't do all those things better. But if I can just be better than my sibling, right? If I can just be better than the neighbor who I secretly compete with, if I can just be better than those people that I measure my life against, then I might have some joy, right? Like, I know things aren't perfect, but as long as I'm doing better than them down the street, then I'll have some joy. Solomon says it doesn't last. It's meaningless. It's vanity. And then he says this in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. 
I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my... Uh, <clears throat> for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So Solomon says, I exercised no restraint, no self-denial. I got my hands on everything I wanted. I explored and enjoyed them to the fullest extent. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I got everything I could get my hands on. And he says this, my only reward was the fleeting pleasure in all of those things. That was my reward. The vacation gave me a little bit of pleasure. The concerts gave me a, a fraction of pleasure. That was the reward. I went after everything I could. Money in the bank, retirement, status, possessions, and all my reward was, was the tiny bit of fleeting pleasure that each of those things provided. It did not last, it did not satisfy. Then he says this in verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Yes, there was some pleasure, but it wasn't lasting. All of it was meaningless. It was chasing after the wind. It was chasing after something that could not give me the joy I was looking for. And Solomon's conclusion is there is no amount of lasting pleasure under the sun that will ever give you what you are looking for. There's no amount. Doesn't matter what you accumulate, what you achieve, what you accomplish, it will not give you lasting meaning apart from Christ. And it's the great theologian Augustine um, who says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Solomon says, I tried everything. And here's the deal. Solomon isn't saying don't go on vacations and don't work hard and don't achieve those things and, and don't go on the trips and don't go to the concerts. He's actually gonna say in the next chapter, enjoy those things. But he's gonna say, fear the Lord and enjoy those things. Use those things to, to glorify and take more pleasure in the Lord. It was, I think, Eric Liddell, I think we were talking about this a couple weeks ago with some of you in the lobby. He was the, uh, was he Scottish, the, the runner in the Olympics? And what does he say? He says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Like I ran because it made me enjoy the Lord more. God gave me a gift and the more I used it, the more I worshiped him and enjoyed him. Go on that vacation and glory in the Lord as you're there. Go to the concert and glory in the Lord as you're there. Solomon is not saying that as Christians, we need to run from good things, run from concerts, run from earthly things, run from accolades, run from vacation, run from you know striving at work. No, he's just saying, don't make them your God because they're not gonna give you what you're looking for. If your job is where you find your identity and your joy and your rest and your purpose, if your bank account is where you find those things, you will never find rest and you will never find joy. Because you'll constantly be glancing over at the stock market to make sure that all of your assets are under good care. If, if you are looking for something to be your God, God has given us great gifts. And Solomon is saying, if you make one of those things, alcohol, pleasure, earthly wisdom, status, your job, your relationships, if you make those things your God, it will collapse. It cannot hold the weight of your desires. It cannot give you the things that you're ultimately looking for. Solomon says, if you're just trying to be great for greatness sake, you will never attain it. And in fact, you wanna know what biblical greatness is? 
Solomon thought greatness was just going after mine. I got this for me. I built this for myself. I got this for myself. Scripture tells us that's not greatness at all. How great is it for you to go and achieve the whole world just so you can enjoy it yourself? Just so you can pleasure yourself? Just so you can have a lot of money yourself? That's not greatness. What does Scripture say greatness is? It's laying down your life. It's dying to yourself for the sake of others. That's what Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus did. That he had the glory of heaven, all of the pleasures of heaven, all of the glory of of literally being worshipped from eternity past to the right time when he decided to humble himself and take on human flesh. And what did he do? He laid down his life. He took on human flesh. He gave it all for the sake of others so that we bestow on him, the Father's bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in his name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he laid down his life. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That if you wanna be great, work hard, make money, be great at your job, and use all of those things for the glory of God. Use all of those things for the good of your neighbor. Work hard, achieve more, Make profit. Why? Not so that you can just have more. So that you can glorify God and you can be good to others. You can show the goodness of God in all that you've done. This is what Solomon is saying. That's what greatness is. So church, let's be a church that enjoys our vacations and enjoys our work and enjoys a nice meal and enjoys all of those things. But do not let your hope and your joy terminate in those things. Allow each one of those things to create more affection and more joy in your heart for God. And praise God as you enjoy that perfect medium steak. And praise God in the morning as you drink that cup of coffee. And praise God as you sit on the beach in the Gulf of Mexico. Thank him for his provision in your life. And lastly, before we take communion, I just want to address, um, I know we talked about pleasure today, but some of you are probably wondering, and I know not wondering um, because I've, I've met with many of you. Um, we have many people in our body that are just suffering. And some of you hear a message like this and you're like, Parker, I would give anything, not, not to worship it or not you know, for an end in itself, but just to, to feel a moment of pleasure in my week. Because I'm walking through deep pain. I'm walking through medical um, illness. I'm walking through physical illness. I'm walking through wayward children. I'm walking through all sorts of things that I would love to just have some pleasure. And here's what I would say to you. Um, Just like Solomon says, all of this under the sun is meaningless apart from Christ. Um, There are so many worldviews that have an explanation for the good things, right? Every worldview has an explanation for for the good things that happen in your life, right? Most secular worldviews or most non-Christian worldviews, it's you've done something good, so, you know, karma or whatever is, is bringing you some good back. But every religion has a, or every belief system, every worldview has a, has a way to explain the good things. Very few religions have a way to explain the suffering, except for you've done something wrong, now you've gotta do some right things to relieve your suffering. That's most other worldviews when it comes to suffering. The the good thing and the the, the hope of the gospel and the message of Ecclesiastes is even your suffering in the the Christian worldview has a purpose. Even your suffering has a place that Jesus comes and puts perspective to our suffering because our ultimate good is not just more stuff. It's not more money. It's not more riches. Our ultimate good is that we would depend on Christ. We would walk with Christ. We would look like Christ and we would dwell with Christ. And for many of us, suffering is the primary vehicle 
That causes us to, to loosen our grip on the things of this world and to bow the knee and to put our full trust and our hope and our dependence on Christ. And I know that doesn't make your pain feel any better. It doesn't make my pain and my relationships feel any better. But Solomon, just like he says, none of this stuff under the sun apart from Christ is meaningless. If there is no Christ, if there is no God under the sun, then so is your suffering. But he says, because there's a God in the universe, because there's a God who is conforming you to the image of his son, even your suffering is redemptive. Even your suffering has a place. Or um, John 8, and I promise I'm done. John 8, you know, um, these guys bring a blind man to Jesus and they essentially say, who sinned? You know, him or his dad? Who sinned? Him or his parents? Right, who did something wrong? That's all of the other worldviews. What did he do wrong to suffer? And what does Jesus say? No one did. But this happened, why? So that God might be glorified. And church, hear me, if you are suffering, I know this doesn't make the pain feel any better, but it is not meaningless. Not for a moment is your pain meaningless. Is it wasted? That God can be glorified. God can conform you to the image of his son and get the glory there. God can heal you and get the glory there. God can bring you home to him and get the glory there. But regardless of what happens, if you're suffering and you're a believer, it is not meaningless. And there's a purpose in it. And I don't know what that is. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I just wanna comfort you and encourage you to keep running to the Lord for your joy and for your peace and for your comfort in the midst of whatever that suffering is. Amen? We know this as we take communion, that our ultimate comfort, our ultimate hope, our ultimate joy came at a price, came at a cost, came at the cost of true greatness, that the eternal Son of God would take on human flesh and not just live for us. That's one amazing thing that he did. He lived without sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. Not once did he waver from his father's divine plan for him and obeying him. But he also died for all of my sin. That for every time my hands wander off into some things that I should never have my business in, his hands were nailed to a cross. That for every time my feet wandered to places I should never go, doing things I never should do, his feet were nailed to a cross. Every time I turned my back from him, his back was whipped and beaten and lashed. And every time I turned my face from him, it was his beard that was ripped out, his face that was beaten and slapped. Every time I dishonor him with my thoughts and my mind goes places it should never go, greed, covetousness, lust, you name it, that instead of a crown on my head, a crown was put on his head. And every time my heart falls in love with a lesser thing, for every time that it does that, which is daily, it was his side that was pierced. That this lasting joy came at the, the body that was broken and the blood that was shed of our Savior. So we want to take a minute. I know we've got the physical church meal tonight, but we want to have the spiritual meal together as a family. And remember that all of this that now gives everything in our life meaning came because our Savior died. He lived an innocent life and he died a criminal's death in my place. It was my cross had my name on it. And the innocent one went to that cross and died in my place and rose again so that I could have life. I could be forgiven of all of my sin. Every pleasure that I've tried to find meaning in that we talked about today, and I've tried them all, 
He went to the cross for those things so that I could see the true treasure and the true pleasure is in him. Amen? So I think I left my element somewhere, but hopefully you have one. Oh, Mr. Jeff is on it already. If you don't have one, raise your hand and we'll uh, make sure you got one. Uh, Larry's got some on this side too. Thank you, brother. I apologize for uh, leaving it back there. But we're gonna remember together the body of Christ that was broken and the blood of Christ that was shed. And I wanna just preface it with this. Um, there's, Paul gives us pretty clear instructions about communion. Um, and let me just say this. Um, scripture is clear that communion is for the, the person that has professed their faith in Jesus Christ. That they recognize their sin, they recognize they can't save themselves, and they are putting their, their trust in the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done that, we're glad you're here. And we ask you politely and respectfully if you would abstain from, from taking the wafer and the juice. You're not missing much, I promise. It's not about the elements, it's about what they mean to us as believers. But Paul would actually encourage you in light of 1 Corinthians 11 um, to not do this. In fact, he says there's greater judgment for those that take this in an unworthy manner. And an unbeliever taking it is in, is in, would be biblically an unworthy manner, but there's also a way the believers can take it in an unworthy manner. Because Paul tells us to first examine ourselves before we take of this, before we remember his body broken and his blood shed. That we wouldn't come to the table flippantly, that we wouldn't come to the table you know, engaging in sin that put our Savior on the cross unrepentantly, that we would confess that before the Lord. So before we partake of the body and the blood, um, just take a minute and bring those sins before the Lord. Confess before him. Confess those thoughts. Confess those worries. Confess um, whatever it is, the doubt, you name it. Confess it before him. The disobedience, the sins of deed or the sins of omission, the things that we should be doing that we're not. Whatever the Spirit leads, take a minute and confess that. Bring it to the foot of the cross and find forgiveness in the body broken and the blood shed of Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Run to your Father and give Him those sins and receive His forgiveness. And then I'll lead us in the elements. Matthew 26 says this. This is Jesus on the Passover night um, before He would go to the cross. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, church, hopefully you found a little film on top of your thing, but uh, let's take the body together. It says this in verse 27, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. Listen to this. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Church, let's remember his blood shed to forgive us of our sins. Let's take the cup. And he says this in verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And we long for that day. But until then, we remember the greatness of our Savior. That he's not great because he came and accumulated a lot of things for himself. That he truly is great because he came and gave of himself. And let's be a church that does the same. And it says in the next verse, in verse 30, that they went out and sang a hymn together. Rejoicing 
in the forgiveness that was accomplished and paid and given through Jesus' sacrifice. So church, let's do the same. Let's sing, let's rejoice in the forgiveness and the healing and the holiness and the righteousness that's freely given to us because of our Savior. So if you'll stand, Father, our only response is just to lift our voices and our hearts for what you've done. God, we're sinners and there's nothing that we deserve. We don't deserve the breath in our lungs. We don't deserve the jobs you've given us, the money, the status, you name it. But God, they're free gifts of your grace. The ultimate gift being giving us yourself. So God, help us to be a people who out of response of what you've done and response to the gospel, that God, we lay our lives down for your glory, for the good of those who you love. God, help us to be a people who love others the way you've loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.